Great. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning here at Lighthouse Discipleship Center. My name is Dave Everett, and we're going to be continuing our teaching this morning on the covenant, the new covenant in my blood, or in his blood. So uh, this is part four. Well, we're going to have one more part next week as we enter into March, that's 2023. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, just so you know, all of our teachings are archived on our website at lighthousediscipleship.org, as well as our YouTube channel. Lighthouse Discipleship Center, and we also want to say thank you to all those who have partnered with us with their tithes and their offerings. In case you're wondering how to do so, you can simply go to our website at lighthousediscipleship.org. In the top right corner it says Give. It's highlighted in blue. It's a blue button, and you give there. You click on there, you can give from anywhere around the world. If you'd rather send us a check, you can simply make your checks payable to Lighthouse Discipleship Center. And on the bottom foot of every page on our website is our mailing address. If you're in the United States, just so you know, all of your contributions are 100% tax deductible, as we are a 501c3 church. So with that said, uh, let's go ahead and jump into our teaching this morning. This is part four. Uh, obviously, when I teach a series, they run together, but this is kind of part two of last week's message. As we've been looking at the book of Hebrews. Because when we're talking about covenant, and we're talking about the new covenant... <coughs> Excuse me, and we're talking about the new covenant in his blood. I'll put, I'll put the scripture on the screen in just a moment. There's no better context to go to than the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. It's written to the covenant people of God. And if there's anyone who understood covenant more better than we do, and that is the Jews. That is the Hebrews. Okay, and so the writer of Hebrews is talking to the Hebrews about how there's a new priesthood. There's a new covenant, there's a new law, and there's a new, um, that, there's a new promises, that are, there's, a, there's a new covenant that's established on better promises, excuse me. So, uh, let me just do a little bit of recap from last week, we started looking at Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 7 and 8 last week, and we're going to look at Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 this week, okay, and in the following week we're going to be looking at some experts from excerpts from uh, Hebrews chapter 12, as well as some other territory, okay? So, uh, again, our key verse in this teaching is from he uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 25, where I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We'll come back to that later, hopefully. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant, that's what we've been talking about, in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Okay? And this is echoed from what Jesus said at the last Passover, when he said, For this is my blood and the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. <coughs> so we're looking at the blood of, his, of the new covenant. And we, like I said, we've been looking at the New Covenant, and we looked at that in very detail last week, and we're going to look at it some more again this week. But this week we're going to highlight more in the New Covenant in, uh, excuse me, I thought we were going to go somewhere else. Okay, we'll go there in just a minute. Okay, I, I, I forgot I'm going to recap. So last week we started in Hebrews chapter 7, and I'm going to highlight some some things again from Hebrews chapter 7. And 
where, where the writer of Hebrews talks about how we have another priest. In the Old Testament, under Levi, there was a, there was a priesthood under Aaron. Okay, under Aaron. He was the first great high priest. But in the New Covenant, we are under another priesthood, a different priesthood, under Melchizedek, and he's from a different tribe. He's from the tribe of Judah. Isn't it, well, Melchizedek is, I say he's not, but this new priesthood is from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. We're not going to teach all that again this morning, but he goes to the, so there's been a change of priesthood, and when there's a change of priesthood, there's a change of law. We talked about that last week. And there's a change of tribe, like, like I just said, from Levi to Judah. Okay? But here we went on to say, I'm just recapping last week real quick, how there's a, a better hope. See, the law will drive you away from God. The law will drive you to uh, is the knowledge of sin. But when under the new covenant, this better hope draws you near to God. Okay? Okay? Uh, if you start going around telling people they're a sinner, well, most of them will drive away from God. Sin, and and I know that that sounds very um, raw to a lot of religious folks when they're trying to preach the law down people's throats. You're actually driving them away many times. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Okay, and so we anyway. I'm not going to go into all that this morning. See, we are in, Jesus is a surety of a better covenant. And we'll get into why it's a better covenant again this morning. Okay? We also talked about in Hebrews chapter 7 how there was a change of priesthood and it, it saved us to the uttermost. See, the old covenant couldn't save you to the, the old covenant. The old covenant couldn't save you at all. The old covenant, the law, according to Corinthians, is a ministry of death. It's a ministry of condemnation. It can only condemn you. But the, the, the new covenant, the ministry of righteousness, the ministry of the Spirit of God, the ministry of reconciliation, again, I'm, I'm quoting from Corinthians, it will save you to the uttermost. The law can't save you. The law can only judge you. The law can only condemn you. The law can only be your taskmaster, to let you know that you need a Savior. But the better covenant is that it brings a better hope. And it draws you to God. It doesn't draw you away from God. See, the penalty, the, all, the, all the law can do is say that you're guilty and your, your, your penalty is death. That's why it's called the law of condemnation, the law of death, or the ministry of death. But Jesus not, became, not only became your sin, he took the penalty of your sin, which was death, that's fulfilling the law. What was fulfilling the law? Someone had to die. And Jesus died for you as your propitiation, as your scapegoat, as your substitute, so that you could live, so that you could become the righteous of God. That's a better covenant, okay? And so, and so that's why Jesus is the surety, the guarantee of that better covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, he spells it right out. This is the main point of the thing that we are saying. Everything that the, everything that the writer of Hebrews is saying is outlined in the next several uh, verses and chapters. <coughs> if you don't know what the main point of Hebrews is, and you have a different main point than what he's saying, you're not reading he, Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1, because now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a great high priest, Everything he's been saying up to this point 
through the first seven chapters, he said, is that we have high priests who are seated at the right hand of God. Why is he seated? Because he finished the work. There's no more work to do. In the old tabernacle, there was never a chair. The priests, the priests of the, Le the Levitical priesthood had to do sacrifices every day. Yes, we have the annual sacrifice once a year where there was an atonement on the mercy seat. But did you know that the priesthood in the Old Testament could, uh, um, performed a burnt offering every morning and every evening except on the Sabbath of every day? That, 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 was a lot of, that was a lot of work. And there was a lot more to do. That was a lot of bloodshed. And we'll get into all the details of that in just a moment. And they minister in the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which is the Lord erected and not man. See, the, the Old Testament ta tabernacle was only a copy, a shadow of the true tabernacle that's in heaven. It was it, it's just a copy. God designed it, God told Moses how to build it, but there's a there's a heavenly tabernacle that God built, not man. That God established, not man. Okay? And the old, in the Old Testament, they served a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. There was a pattern. There was a pattern that was shown to Moses. What's the pattern? The, the, main, the, the main ones in heaven. But there was a pattern that to illustrate for us, not just to, to have all, all these or, rules and laws, but to illustrate what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. You can read the book of Leviticus, you can read all about the tabernacle, all the sacrifices, all the feasts, and you see it's an illustrated sermon of what Jesus accomplished for us through the finished work of the cross. Okay? It's a shadow, it's a copy. And and this better covenant is established on better promises, and we're gonna build on that again this morning. Because again, Jesus is the surety and the better covenant. Okay, so not only do we have a new priesthood with new laws, but we also have a new covenant. Okay, I'm not going to read all of this again this morning. Okay, and we had to have a new covenant because they did not continue in the first covenant. The first covenant was from God, but we're going to see again this morning why it, the first covenant could not perfect anybody. It could not save anybody. It could not sanctify anybody. All it could do was condemn. All it could do was judge. Okay. And so this, and what is the new covenant? He spells it out. I love, I love Hebrews chapter eight because he's right to the point. This is the new covenant I will make with Israel. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. The number one thing that God wants to do, if He wants to be your God, is He is He your King? Yes. Is He your Father? Yes. Is He your Savior? Yes. Is He your Lord? Yes. He wants to be your God. And nobody else can be that. No one else can do that. And he wants you to be his people. But you can't be his people if you're alienated from God. If you're separated from God. If you can't even be in his presence. That's why Jesus came. So that you can be sanctified and right before God. So you can have a relationship with God. And you can be his people. It's a covenant. It's like marriage. Marriage is till death do us part. That's a covenant. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is not a, um, it's a it's, there's an oath, there's a vow, there's a, there's a covenant. And it's till death do us part. 
I'm not going to go into all that. Yes, there's different reasons for abuse and different reasons, and I'm not judging anyone who's had a divorce. Don't get me wrong. That's not where I'm going with that. But I only mention that because that's probably the best example so far we have on the earthly, on the earthly scale of what a covenant is. And God established marriage, not man. Okay, God's the one that instituted that covenant relationship. But even marriage is really a copy and a shadow of our marriage with Jesus, our groom. It's really an illustrative sermon in an earthly relationship that doesn't even compare to our relationship with God. Okay, and so, um, anyway, I'm not going to go there much longer. It goes on to say, this is the covenant. That's what he's saying. He's not done. <coughs> Excuse me. And none of them shall teach his neighbor, and none of his brother saying, Know the Lord. The number one thing that God wants you to do is know him. This is eternal life, John 17, 3, is that you know him. That you have a relationship with God and with Jesus Christ. Okay? And for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their laws and I will remember no more. We're going to come back to this because the writer of Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 10. He echoes what he said in Hebrews chapter 8. This new covenant is built on mercy. The old covenant is built on, it's in a law of condemnation and death. But the new covenant is being merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and lawless deeds, they will remember no more. Remember our key verses that we would remember? His body that's broken for us. We remember the blood of his new covenant. We're not supposed to remember what we done wrong. We're supposed to remember what he did right to make us right with God. Okay, we'll come back to that later. Goes on to say, okay, that remember no more. And that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Again, and we'll come back to some of this stuff later. Um, but again, we're talking about a new covenant that's establishing new promises because Jesus is a surety of that promise. Again, I wish I could go back and spend more time here, but I spent a lot of time on here this year last week, so you have to re-listen to last week's message. Okay, so again, we're talking about a new covenant, the new covenant of his blood. That's the title of this series, the title of this teaching. And we talked a lot about covenant, and we still will talk about this some more. But today we're going to focus more on his blood. This was the screen that I got with up here earlier. Okay, I, I got ahead of myself. Okay, and we're also supposed to do this in remembrance of him. Okay, we'll come back to that later. So, so we're going to focus a lot on the blood part. So this is going to be kind of a bloody message. So excuse me. So, you know... I say that because I, I was uh, part of a church a while back, and the pastor, the great pastor in many ways, but he said, let's not talk about the blood so much. You know, um, if people don't understand it, it's confusing, it's kind of going to the world, it's, it's, it just seems bloody, you know, it just seems gross, it just seems cruel. You can't talk about Christianity, you can't talk about the Word of God, you can't talk about our relationship with God without talking about the blood. That is the cornerstone of everything we believe. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is nothing to talk about. If they don't understand it, we need to teach it to them. We need them to understand it. As pastors and teachers, it's our job to make it clear. It's our part. The Holy Spirit is the ultimate teacher, not us. But we are his messengers. We are his, his voice piece. And so we need to make it clear. Because the new, the new covenant in his blood... Is the cornerstone of everything we believe. If we don't have this, we have nothing. 
If we don't have the blood of Jesus, we're all going to hell. Okay, it's that important. It's life and death. Okay. Peter echoes on this whole blood thing, right? He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with the corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of the Lamb without blemish without spot. Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He echoes the same thing in Colossians, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So we're going to be talking about the the blood part of this covenant. Again, <clears throat> so we're looking forward to what we're going to be going to, but Christ has redeemed us from the high priest of God for things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves. That's the whole covenant. A blood of a, a calf and a goat can't save you. That just, you know, it's a, it's a shadow, it's a type. But with his own blood, with the blood of Jesus, he entered the most holy place, the true tabernacle of God. Once and for all, we'll come back to this, having obtained an eternal redemption. Sorry, I came off the screen here, but, <coughs> excuse me, this is one of the main verses we're going to be looking at this morning as we look at Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 12. Because of what Jesus did by his own blood, because he died once and for all, because he gave us eternal redemption, and we're going to expound on this, okay? We can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy and grace in our time of need. We spent a lot of time already in this series and even the last series talking about the mercy seat. Talking about his mercy. The mercy seat was what the blood was applied to. And because of his mercy, because of Jesus' blood, we can come boldly to the throne of grace and we can receive mercy and grace anytime we need. You messed up? Come and receive some mercy. Need some help? Come get some grace. You can come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? Because of this new covenant by the blood of Jesus. You can come boldly. Not you are a child of God. You have been redeemed. You have a better covenant, a better promises. And we can come boldly to the throne of grace. So we're going to be, again, talking about the better covenant that's based on better sacrifices. We're talking about Jesus, really, this morning. There's four main things I'm going to be highlighting this morning. I'll spell it out for you right, right now, but then we're going to be talking about them as we go forward. The blood of Jesus accomplished four things for us. These are not the only four things, but these are the four things we're going to be talking about this morning. The first thing is that the blood of Jesus did is it sanctified us. It sanctified the believer. The blood of Jesus sanctified the believer. <coughs> Excuse me. The second thing that the blood of Jesus did, so the first thing it did is sanctify the believer. The second thing that the blood of Jesus accomplished is secure the promises. The blood of Jesus secured the promises. So it sanctified the believer, it secured the promises. The third thing that the blood of Jesus did, it, it set us free from our sins. It set us free from our sins. Not just the penalty of sin, but the blood of Jesus will set you free from sinning, if from our sins. Okay, and we'll get into that a little bit later. The fourth thing that the blood of Jesus did, so it's, it, 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 secure, it sanctified the believer, it secured the promises, it set us free from our sins, and, and the fourth thing really is a, is a, is a summary of all, all three of these, is it finished all things, it finished everything. Every, 
studying that needed to be done to sanctify us, to secure the promises, to set us free from sin, it finished the work. It's a finished work. Jesus is not still on the cross. Jesus doesn't have to go to the cross again. There's not another sacrifice that needs to be done. There's nothing more that needs to be done. We need to receive this by faith. We need to have faith in his grace. We need to have faith in what Jesus did in the blood of his new covenant. Okay? He finished the job. So he, he uh, sanctified the believer. He secured the promises. He set us free from our sins. And he finished all things. And we'll, we'll elaborate on those as we go forward. And because he did that, because he did these four things that we're going to talk about, we can come boldly to his throne of grace, receive mercy in our time of need. Another key verse that we looked at, <coughs> uh, we'll look at as we go forward. We're going to catch up to this. And according to the law, almost all things were purified with blood. Even in the old covenant. We're talking about two different covenants here. We're talking about a better covenant. We're talking about the new covenant. <coughs> but even in the old covenant, which was a, a copy, a shadow of the real covenant, the new covenant, almost all things were purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Okay, we're going to expand. We're going to go there, but I want to highlight this word of remission real quick as we, as, before we go too further. This word remission is defined as forgiveness, deliverance, liberty, to pardon as if sin was never committed. That's remission, according to the the, the Greek definition of this word. It's forgiveness, it's deliverance, it's liberty, which is freedom, and it's to pardon. As if sin was never committed. See, in the Old Testament, through the sacrifices under the, the, the Old Covenant, forgiveness by was faith was faith in the believer to come. Right, let me say that again. Forgiveness by the believer is in the Redeemer that was to come. So in the Old Testament, through the sacrifices, everything they did was all a foreshadow. Of putting faith in Jesus, the Redeemer, who was to come, the Messiah. In the New Testament, we're putting faith in the Redeemer who has come. In the Old Testament, they were the, it was an illustrated service through the whole ta of the of the tabernacle and the sacrifices of the Redeemer who was to come. In the New Testament, we have faith in the Redeemer who has come. We don't need to keep doing the sacrifices because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. In the Old Covenant, they had to do the sacrifices because they had to have the continual reminder of the Redeemer who was to come. I'm hoping, hoping you can understand that. See, in the Old Testament, it was looking forward to the cross. In the New Testament, we're looking backward to what the, the finished work of the cross. See, I'm trying to help you understand the two covenants. The, the Old Covenant was holy, it was good, it was instituted by God, but the cross hadn't happened yet. So it couldn't be perfect yet. It couldn't perfect you. It was only a shadow. It was only a copy. Okay? Ever watch a Peter Pan movie? His shadow? It wasn't Peter Pan. It was his shadow. Okay? And so, anyway. it's But in the New Testament, it's a finished work. It's a done work. In the Old Testament, it wasn't finished yet. It hadn't been done yet. Yet, in a sense, the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Prophetically speaking, and I don't, I don't have time to go into all that right now, but it, the whole Old Testament, 
Testament ordinances and sacrifices and, and everything, rituals and whatnot, were all a foreshadow, a copy of the true sacrifice that was to come through Jesus. And when Jesus did come, we don't need to do the sacrifices anymore because Jesus finished the work. It's, it's a done deal. Okay? And we're going to be talking about, I'll go back a couple screens. Actually, I think I can go forward. We're going to be talking about this eternal redemption. Sorry, it kind of off the screen here, so hopefully you can see it in the video. But it's uh, this eternal. It's it's not it's not it's an eternal redemption. You can't touch it with natural things. Nobody can take it away from you. It's eternal, okay? And eternal also means that it never. It's never to be done again. It's eternal. Your redemption is paid for by the blood of Jesus. It's paid in full, and it doesn't need to be done again. It's one sacrifice for all sins of all men. Is everybody saved? No, because not everyone has received Jesus. Many have rejected the payment. It's like someone painting your house or your car, and you said, no, I reject that. I don't believe they paid for it. I don't want it. I don't want anything to do with that person. They paid for my house. They paid for my car. I don't want anything to do with it. You have the right to reject it. You're a fool, but you have the right to reject it. Okay? It's not forced on you. Okay? And so, it, it is a, we're going to be looking at it's a perfect sacrifice. He completed the thing. It's done. There's no one else who's greater than Jesus who will come. And Jesus doesn't need to come again. He will come again as king. He will come again to take us home. But he's not coming again to die. He died and he rose again. Okay. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Sorry, I spent a lot of time on that already. But let's go to this chapter, chapter 9 and chapter 10. So begin with verse 1. And then indeed... The first covenant, so there's two covenants, okay, had ordinances of divine service and earthly and the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which the lampstand and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So in the first few verses, the writer of Hebrews is really, and he, again, he's writing to the Jews. The Jews knew this. Most of us who weren't didn't live there are not our Jews. This might be a little strange to us. But the tabernacle had two main rooms, or chambers, if you want to call that. Okay? There was two bells. There was the first bell, and, and we have the sanctuary, where we have the lampstand, the table of showbread, and, and, and so forth. There's no chair there. And then we have what we call the main bell, the second bell, and I'm, get, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, where we have the Ark of the Covenant, and the mercy seat, where the priest went in one time a year. Okay? That was the bell that was rent by two, by God, when Jesus died on the cross. But there's two bells and there's two rooms. Okay? I believe the, the and, and this first room is called the sanctuary. It's also called the holy place. Okay? It's, and it, there's a bell before this chamber. We'll, we'll see that a little bit in a minute. I believe the holy place represents the souls of man. And whereas the, the holy place represents the spirit of man. One, another way of looking at that, the holy place represents man who's sanctified. And we have, the, we have 
the, the or let me just rephrase that. We just have man, the soul of man, and then in the, in the holy, most holy place we have the Spirit of God. God himself, because his ark is there, his covenant is there, his, his presence is there. Okay? Let's move on. Verse 3. And, be, and behind the second veil, well, you can't have a second veil if you don't have a first veil. Okay? This is the main veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the Holy Holies of All, or the Most Holy Place, or the, the Holy of Holies. Okay? Verse 4. Which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid with all sides of gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablet of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, when that's where the blood was applied, of uh, these things which we cannot speak in detail. I'm going to rush through this a little bit because I spent a lot of time in the last, in this series and last series talking about this, these, these two verses right here. I spent a lot of time talking about this already. So I'm not going to teach that again because I have to read, look at the archives, okay? Because when we talk about God's covenant, we talk about his mercy seat, we talked about the chairman at length, okay? And so these same chairmen were the same chairman, I believe, that when God ousted Adam and Eve from the garden after the fall, with two chairmen with a flaming sword. These chairmen were also embroidered on this. Let's go back one screen. Were, were embroidered on this. If you read the Le Levitical law, they were embroidered on this veil. And this veil was ripped by God from top to bottom. Okay? And this this whole Ark of the Covenant, see the Ark itself was wooden. Wood stands for man. Gold stands for, for God or purity. And it was, the ark itself was a wooden box that was overlaid with gold. And on top of the, of the ark, on this wooden box overlaid with gold, was the mercy seat. The mercy seat was solid gold. It wasn't wood overlaid with gold, it was solid gold. And on top of that mercy seat was cherubim. And the cherubim looked only at one thing. It only looked at the blood, but it was applied on the mercy seat. And if that blood wasn't good enough, if that priest went into that room to, to apply the blood, that priest did not come out alive. Okay? They, the, the cherubim only saw one thing. They were God's guardian, the guardians of God's holiness. That's why they asked Adam and Eve from the, the, from the garden. Okay? And the verses, I'm not going to reteach all this, even though I gave you a little bit of uh, a recap right here. Okay? Let's go to verse 6. And now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing services. In other words, the priests went into the first part, the, the holy place, where the showbread and lampstand are. They went there every day, except for the Sabbath day. They went there six days a week, so they always went into the first part. Okay, But into the second part, the holy of holies, the most holy place, the high priest went into there once a year. But they didn't go in there without blood. You can't talk about the covenant without the blood. Because you didn't go in there without the blood. Okay? Which he offered for himself and for the people's sins. See, Jesus didn't need to offer for himself. He was a different priesthood. And he was a different priest. But the old priest did have to offer for themselves. And the people's sins committed in ignorance. And the Holy Spirit indicated that the way into the holiest, the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still here. The, the way in wasn't made manifest yet. Why? Because Jesus hadn't died yet. 
this was all copied in 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 a copy and a shadow of what was to come. Verse 19. It was symbolic. Everything that we talked about was symbolic for the present time. Everything that God instituted in this whole tabernacle was symbolic for now. Okay? In which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerning all with food and drinks and various washings and fleshy ordinances imposed unto the time of Reformation. Reformation. He's not talking about Martin Luther when he put the 99 Theses on, on, on uh, in uh, Wittenberg. Okay? He's not talking about those, that. What's the Reformation? He's talking he's talking about all, all the, the Reformation of the Old Covenant being reformed from the Old Covenant and all of its ordinances and whatever watchings and whatnot into a new covenant. There's a reformation taking place. That's the whole reason why the, this writer is writing to the Jews, the Hebrews, that we are in a better covenant, a new priesthood, a new law, a new covenant. I mean, no, if you kind of change all that stuff, you're going to have a reformation. Some things need to be reformed, okay? And so we're talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We're talking about salvation because the cross... The cross, the blood of Jesus, changed everything. How they did serve, how they how they approached God, how they saw God, how they saw themselves. They were for the first time because of Jesus set free from sin. Okay, and so, and we're going to get to our main, four main points here in just a moment. They sanctified us. It secured the promise. It set us free from sin. It finished the work. There was a reformation going on. It was a change. I mean, when you understand the gospel, when you understand what Jesus accomplished, it will change your life. It will cause you to be born again. Okay? And because we have a change of priesthood, we have a change of law, we have a change of covenant. Okay, let's go to verse 11. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect. He was talking about, let's go back one, he was talking about the old tabernacle that was symbolic. He couldn't make anyone perfect. Okay, he had all these ordinances and, and washings and cleansings and, and whatnot. But Christ came uh, with a greater and more perfect tabernacle. This stuff wasn't perfect. They couldn't make anyone perfect. But this tabernacle was, was a greater and more perfect. Not made with hands. As not of this creation, and not with the blood of goats, goats and calves. A, a, a blood of an animal can't save you. Okay, it was all symbolic of the one who would come, but with his own blood, whose blood, Christ. He entered the most holy place, the true tabernacle of God, once and for all, and having obtained the eternal. This redemption, this eternal redemption we received, came from his blood, the blood of his covenant, of this new priest. What priest? He's been talking about this new priesthood since chapter 5, 6, and 7. If you read the book of Hebrews, he's been talking about this new priesthood. And he talked about how this new priest shed, he wasn't like the other, other priests. <coughs> 
Because all they did was shed a, a goat and a, and a, and a bull, or a, a cow. Okay? But this priest of a different tribe, of a different priesthood, with a different law, with a new covenant, established on better promises, he became the surety of that promise by his own blood, in which Christ came once and for all. See, these priests had to do it every year. These priests had to do it every day. But this priest came once and for all to give us the eternal redemption. Okay? So again, we're, we're talking about better covenant and establishing better promises because Jesus, this great high priest, is the surety, the guarantee of this better covenant. It's a better The Word of God calls it a better covenant. I can call it that. Okay? It's a new covenant, but it's a better covenant. Okay, so again, we have this tabernacle that is by his own blood. Okay, let me just catch up with myself here, see what I'm missing in my notes. Okay, so we have the, the better sacrifice of Jesus and his power and the blood of Jesus. And so the first thing that, again, as I told you before, that the blood of Jesus accomplishes is that it sanctifies us, it sanctifies us the believer. Okay, so we're going to be looking at that. So, so this is what he says here in verse 13. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, as a cow, sprinkling, sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. So there was this Old Testament sanctification, but again, it was just a shadow, and it really didn't perfect you. It really didn't sanctify you. It was a shadow of the, of the sanctification of but if, if, if a bull and a goat and a heifer, the blood of that animal can sanctify you in a symbolic way, how much more shall the blood of Christ, I should highlight in red, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your, not only your, your, your heart, but your conscience from dead works. To serve the living God. That's sanctification. That's making you holy. That's cleansing you. And not just your sins, which we'll get to, but it's cleansing even your conscience. Paul says that evil conscience, a sin conscience is evil consciousness. We're not going to go there this morning. But dead works. What's dead works? I believe dead works for far as sin. Anything of sin. <coughs> Excuse me. But dead works are also legalism. Trying to justify yourself by the law. Anything that's not a faith is sin, the Bible says. Okay? It's religion. It's dead works. Because you trying to save yourself by what you do is a dead work. Because you can't do something better than what the blood of Jesus did. Only the blood of Jesus can sanctify you. Only the blood of Jesus can save you. Only the blood of Jesus can change your life. If you think your works are better than the blood of Jesus, your works are dead. That's Antichrist. That's the word Antichrist, Antichristo, means instead of or against Christ. If you think your performance is better than the blood of Jesus, you're wrong. Okay, and that's dangerous. That's wrong. Okay. I'm not saying we're not supposed to do good works. I'm all for holiness. I'm all for living righteously. 
I'm all for living godly, godly, God-like. Titus says, the grace of God teaches us to live godly. I'm paraphrasing. You have to be taught to live godly. And what teaches you? Grace. Grace doesn't teach you to live any way you want to. Grace teaches you to live godly. And anyone who has that backwards hasn't read the gospel, hasn't read the Bible. Okay? Some people think we teach that, and they're wrong. They're bearing false witness, because that's a lie from the pit of hell. They're lying to the Holy Spirit by saying that. Because they haven't listened to anything we said, because we teach against that. But those who believe they're under the grace and can live any way they want to, have not been taught by grace, because grace will teach you to live a godly life. But living a godly life doesn't save you. It's the fruit. It's called the fruit of holiness. It's called the fruit of righteousness. Fruit is not the root. You can't have the fruit without the root. The root is the seed, the blood of Jesus. We're born again by the word of God, by the blood of Jesus. We're not born again by what we do, but because we are holy, because we are righteous by the blood of Jesus, we have to live like who we are. I expect my dog to act like a dog. I had someone this week complaining that my dog was peeing in the backyard. My dog isn't supposed to pee in the backyard. I don't want him to pee in the house. That's what dogs do. Okay? What's he going to do? Hold it all his life? You can't get more foolish than that. You need... The dog is supposed to pee in the backyard. Okay? Now, if it was peeing in the house, we're going to have it... We're going to deal with that. We're going to train that dog not to do that. And when with the puppy, we, we did have to have some learning curves there, okay? But if we are holy, we live holy. If we're a dog, we live like a dog. If we're a girl, we live like a girl. If we're a boy, we live like a boy. And when we become mature, and some of us are still working on that, we act like a man or a woman. We act like who we are. We don't act like it to become it. We act like who we are. Okay, okay, I need to get off that treadmill. Okay? Let me find out where we are. So, the blood of Jesus was an eternal application that never needs to be done again. The blood of Jesus was applied to our sin, our guilt, our offense, and that blood erased, made it white as snow, separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. And that application of the blood of Jesus was eternal and that it, did not need, it does not need to be applied again. But that makes sense. The blood of Jesus is good enough. The Old Testament, in, in contrast, the Old Testament sacrifices only dealt with the outward man. But the blood of Jesus will deal with the conscience, the inward man. Okay? And so, I'll build on some things as we go. But also, he's talking, if you also read the context, see if I can go back here just a little bit, it's not too far. He's talking also about a lot of legalistic stuff that we have to do. Legal, there was a time and place where they were supposed to do this as a top type of shadow. Because law this washing, cleansing, and ritual is symbolic to how we should live. Not that we should live in doing these things, but we should be walking a godly, holy life. Okay? 
And so it, it, it's, it's symbolic of that. You need to listen to the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law. There's a difference. Okay, there's, there's, there's still a holy, there's still godliness in the spirit of the law that we can pay attention to because they're God's precepts. His, his, his statutes. We're still supposed to be holy because he is holy. Okay, but only he can make you holy. All right, let me catch up with myself here. So the context, he's talking about a lot of legalism here. Because he's talking about there's a change of covenant. There was a lot of legalism in the Old Testament. Okay? But Paul says, and I'm going to steer away from it for a moment. Paul, if you read 2 Corinthians, says the law can be like a veil that blinds your mind. If you're not careful. And the only way to remove that veil is to preach Christ. Okay? And when, there's, when the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. Okay? Because he goes on to say, and I want to, I want to pick you back on this cleansing your, your conscience. Paul says in Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, that's dead works, but according to his mercy, we're talking about his mercy, his blood, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a lot here I don't want you to have time to piggyback on, but I want to piggyback on this washing of regeneration. We have been redeemed. We have been regenerated. We're born again. Not a corruptible seed, but an incorruptible seed. I don't know the proper way to do it, but if you take a branch off an orange tree and you graft it into an apple tree and you do it properly, that orange branch will become an apple branch. We've been redeemed, regenerated by the blood of Jesus. It's a washing. It's a regeneration. We're no longer a sinner. We are saved by grace. And we need a renewing. We need a re renovate. If you say this word renewing, it means to renovate. We need to renovate our mind. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Romans 12. Okay? But there's a washing. There's a washing of regeneration of our Consciousness. We were we were sinner. We were going to hell, but there's a, a cleansing of our conscience. There's a washing of regeneration that takes place because of the blood of Jesus. This is awesome if you, if you understand this. And we have a part to play in this, where we need to allow the Holy Spirit to renew our minds. There's a yielding that we takes place. He does the work, but we have to yield. Okay, just like you know, if I go to a barber or someone to do my hair, I have to yield my head so they can work on my hair. They're gonna have a hard time cutting my hair if I'm resisting. If they have to pin me down to cut my hair, it's gonna be a sloppy job. But I have to yield. I have to. They're gonna do the work, but I gotta, I, I gotta participate to a certain degree. Right? One, I gotta show up. <laughs> Second, I gotta sit still when they say sit still, or whatever the case may be. That makes sense. Okay? And that's probably a bad illustration, but it's, it's what I got right now. Okay? And so, so it's not, it's not by works of 
righteousness we have done, but we are washing regeneration of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's an eternal, again, it's an eternal redemption. We've been redeemed, and, and it's been eternal redemption. So the first thing that the, the Holy Spirit, I mean, the blood of Jesus accomplishes is that it sanctifies us. This whole regeneration, this whole cleansing of our conscience is, is, is a sanctifying process. We're not really done with that, that, that first point. We're going to see it throughout the scriptures we keep continuing to read. But the second thing I want to go into is that he secures the promise. So we're going to pick it back up in verse 15. And for this reason, <coughs> excuse me, he, Jesus, is a mediator of a new covenant. We don't need it. Moses was a mediator in the old covenant. We don't need a mediator anymore. We don't need anyone better than Jesus. Okay? I'm okay with interceding for people, but we're not a mediator. We need to make that distinction. It's okay to pray for people and that you intercede for people and you're praying for them, but you're not their mediator. You need to make sure you you, you make that distinction, okay? Because you can get in trouble if you don't. You know? and, uh, but it's just, we're not Jesus. He is interceding for us at the right hand of God. We're not doing that. But we can't pray for people. That makes sense? Okay. That was not my main point, but I just felt like I had to make something there. But he is a mediator of a new covenant by means of death. That's another reason why you can get in trouble. You're not a mediator because you're not going to die for somebody else. Because if you try to die for someone else, and I'm not saying there's not natural circumstances where you might be a hero, but when you just die, you, that's all that happens. You die. If you're a believer, you go with God. If you're not a believer, uh, you, you have an eternal death that's coming. But anyway, I need to get off that thought. Jesus is our mediator of the new covenant. How is he a mediator of that new covenant? He died for us. Because there was only one way to do this. There was only one way to fulfill all righteousness. Because the law demanded someone died. The law condemned us. The law said is the ministry of death. That's all the, all the law could do. There was a fence, there has to be a death. That's all it could do. The law didn't grade on the curb. The law didn't have mercy. The law didn't have grace. The law condemned. So Jesus became our sin so that the law could judge him as our mediator and not us. Okay? For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that's the law, that those who are called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. We don't just have an eternal redemption, but with that redemption comes an eternal inheritance. That's awesome. Because there's a lot of stuff in this inheritance. God invested himself for you. And Paul does a good job in his first prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, talking about the eyes of our heart being opened that we would know the hope of our inheritance. And there's a lot in that inheritance that I, I, I need to do a series on that. Uh, soon. Talking about I mean, the inheritance. God invested himself in you by death. So you can have an inheritance. And that inheritance is eternal. It's not just what we get in heaven. That is the bigger scope of it. That is the bigger piece of that. But today is the day of salvation. And we can enjoy some of that inheritance now. 
Okay, we can't enjoy the full enchilada because you're not going to get a new body yet. <laughs> okay, we still live in this old, old body. We still live in this old earth. Okay, there's still sin in this world. But then we're going to get a new heaven, a new earth. And there's some, some things that we, we um, are, are going to experience in heaven that we just can't experience here. Because there's still sin in the world. There's still a devil out there. There's still some things. But there's still, but this eternal, this inheritance is eternal. So that means it's not restricted by time or space or anything natural. Okay. I don't have time to go into all of that. But with the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise. We have a, a, a new covenant that's established on what? Better promises. So what we're talking about right now is Jesus through his blood, he sanctified us, but he also secured the promise. How did he secure the promise? By his death. How did that take place? Let me, let me, I, I, I need to go where I just said, but I want to say one more thing about the eternal inheritance. If man didn't give it to us, man didn't give you this inheritance, God did. Okay, it's eternal. And man can't take it away. It, was, it wasn't given to you by man, and man can't, can't touch it. Let me, uh, let me, let me piggyback on this inheritance. I can go back to what I just said in just a moment. Peter said that this, we have an inheritance that's incorruptible, it's undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. But how do we know we can also pray His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven? So we can experience over there now. <coughs> Excuse me, but there is inheritance that's incorruptible, it's reserved for you in heaven. That means you got to get there to experience the full benefit of heaven. I will go back to something real quick. What I was just saying. I hope I can get this thought back. God provided this inheritance for you. But the only way he could secure it was through his death. What do I mean by that? First, let's go to verse 16. For where there is a testament, that's another word for covenant, same word, it's just translated differently. Where there's a covenant, where there's a testament, there must also necessity be the death of the testator. If I had a will, that will does not come into effect until me, the testator, dies. That makes sense? The testament, the covenant, is not in force until the death of a testator. For a testament or covenant is in force after men are dead. Since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Jesus is our death certificate. He made a covenant. And because he died on the cross and he shed his blood. That testament is in full force. Because he died but he also rose again. He's secured. He's the surety of this covenant. How do we know? Because he died. And how do we know that his death was, was sufficed? 
because he rose again. I, I, I mean, I need, I need a few more weeks to describe everything I just did. Okay? But his death means everything. But death couldn't hold him. Death has been annulled, according to the book of Isaiah. Death no longer has a sting, because he conquered death. And he rose again. Okay? See, but because Jesus is the testator, and he did die, the covenant, the testament, is in full force. Okay? How many of you know that it says in Corinthians, our main context, that when we take partake in remembrance of him, his body that was broken for us, and the, the blood of his covenant that's represented in that cup, he says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a proclamation taking place. It's the same proclamation because the Passover is a continual reminder of the first Passover when Jesus, when God said the death angel will pass over when I see the blood. Why? Because there's already been a death in the house. What was the last plague? The death of the firstborn. And Jesus is the firstborn of many brethren. He was the firstborn. And because there's already been a death in the house, he's the firstborn. We live. And the testament is in full force because Jesus died for us. But he didn't stay in the grave. Paul in Ephesians says he took captivity captive. He has the keys of death of, of, of the grave. Sorry, I'm missing the words. He talked about this in the book of Revelation chapter 1. He repeats it elsewhere. But he has, he is the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. He has the keys. He is the king. He is the Lord, and he is the testator of his covenant that he made with us by his blood. And because of that, we have an eternal redemption. We have an eternal inheritance. He sanctified us, and he secured the promise. See, the blood of Jesus brings the last will testament, his covenant, into force. Another thing, no way of looking at this. It's a the one reason why a will does not have any effect until the testator dies, because while the testator is still living, he can change the, he can change it. If I have a will, I can amend that will until I die. But once I die, however I left it is how I live. Let leave it. But we also know that God changes not. <coughs> we also know, excuse me, he honors his word, his testament, above his own name. God doesn't change. God takes his word seriously. 
That's why he tells us in the book of Matthew and also in the book of James, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because anything less, anything less of these is from the evil one. Why? Because God keeps his word. But the devil is the father of lies. So in one sense, if you don't let your yes be yes and your no be no, you're acting like the devil. I'm not saying you are the devil, but God keeps his word. The only one who doesn't keep his word is the devil. And when we don't keep our word, if we're going to be godly, godlike, and Christ-like, we need to be godlike. We, we're created in the image of God, and we need to keep our word. Anything less than that is from the evil one. And James says we, there's judgment with that. Okay, and I'm not going to go there anymore this morning. Okay, um, so let's, let's move on. Therefore, even in the first covenant, was not even, for therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all people according to the law, he took the blood of cows and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. This, this has always fascinated me. The first even the, the original tabernacle and all of its instruments was dedicated by blood. And that was all symbolic. We've been dedicated by the blood of Jesus. Because not only, even in the Old Testament, he took the blood of the cows and goats, and he sprinkled not only the people, but the book itself. The law! The law was dedicated by the blood. The blood is greater than the law. Because it, the only way the book itself became holy is by the blood. The only way we become holy, the people, is by the blood. The law is not greater than God. The only thing that made it is holy, it is good, because it came from God, but the only thing that can make it good and holy is the blood. And that's the first covenant. We're in a better covenant. Our better promises. Okay? And so, the first covenant is not anti-God, but the blood of the, the, the if if the law had to become holy by the blood, then the, the law can't make anything holy. Because it, it couldn't even make itself holy. There's only one thing that made it holy, and that was the blood. Okay? Oh, we are making jokes here. Um, but then he goes on to say this, verse 20. Saying this, so everything he just read, he sprinkled blood on the book and the people, saying this. This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Does that not look very similar to 1 Corinthians 11.25? This is the blood of my covenant which God commanded you? I it gets better. Because I love the King James. And the King James says, This is the blood of the testament, the covenant, which God had enjoined unto you. This is powerful. God has enjoined his covenant, his testament with you by his blood. This is awesome. What did the 
just got commanded, I don't know, but I, he enjoined. <coughs> Excuse me. God enjoined his testament, his covenant to you by his blood. That is very similar to what Paul says of what Jesus, he echoes from Jesus. When, he's, when Jesus says, this is the blood of my covenant. And he's speaking, the writer of Hebrews is speaking of the old covenant. It's a shadow of the pattern. Okay? I'm not mocking the law. I'm not mocking the old covenant. I am exalting Jesus and the new covenant of his blood. I mean, no, my shadow is not me, but it looks somewhat like me. It doesn't look like you. Okay? Unless your your body is built similar to mine, your shadow is more likely going to look like me, not you. Okay? Uh, I'm just looking at my, my notes here. And, again, Jesus is the surety of this covenant. That God has, I'll go back, has enjoined to you. He's the surety of that covenant. Let's go forward. And with this covenant is established on better promises, no doubt of the old covenant that He has enjoined unto us. Okay. Hopefully, you're getting stuff from that. That's very powerful and you understand what we're reading. Let's move forward, verse 21. I'm running out of time. Then, likewise, he, he's talking about the Old Testament priests, sprinkled, and Moses, sprinkled with blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Everything was anointed by the blood. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That's a very powerful statement, and Paul quotes that in many ways, talking about the blood of Jesus, in both Colossians, Ephesians, and many other passages of scripture that we've already shared with you. Okay. Almost all things in the law were purified by the blood. The, the, law, the, law, the law sanctifies you. That's kind of, this is all talking about sanctification again. Purifying. But he's also secured the promise. Am I making sense? Am I making sense? Hopefully I am. But another point he's bringing out here in, in Hebrews chapter 9 that not even the first covenant was dedicated with blood. Both covenants were dedicated by blood. We have better promises, a better covenant established on better promises in the new covenant, but both covenants secured everything by blood. They purified everything by blood. Okay, again, when Moses had taken every precept to the people according to the law, he took the blood of the cows and goats and the water scarlet with wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book of the law and the people itself. And thus saying, the blood of the covenant, which has God commanded you, what God has enjoined to you. And this speaks very loudly to me of this new covenant that is in his blood. He also said, for where there has a testament, there must also be the death of the testator, for the testament is a force after man or death. This, this testament, this covenant that God has enjoined to us is in force because of what Jesus did. God has enjoined his covenant with us. 
appropriateness and making sense. Um, I just want to make sure I'm not, not leaving something out here. So he's a surety of a better covenant, and we better covenant and better promises. Let's go to verse 21. Okay, no one does. I got the wrong page. So let me let me back up a minute. I did, I did mess something up. Sorry. So we're talking again. We're talking about the covenant of His blood. Sorry, I just want to make sure I'm not missing something here. But the covenant comes into power by death, the death of his blood, which we've already established. Jesus died to bring that last testament into force, which is what we're, we're talking about here. I did, I did elaborate on that. But, so Jesus died to bring the last testament into force, but he also rose again to carry it out. Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God. But he's sitting on the throne of God. And his scepter is righteousness. I talked about that in Hebrews chapter 1, I think it's verse 8. The scepter is righteous. God, I mean, you know, Jesus, sitting on the throne of God, is enforcing his covenant to be carried out on our behalf and through and the, and the earth. He is king. He is sitting at the right hand of his majesty and high. He's not just sitting there playing uh, Scrabble. He's there because he is our Savior. He is Lord, and he is our mediator, and he is enforcing and carrying out his will and his covenant that he died for. Okay? But how many know it also says in, in Revelation 5 that he died and he made us king. He, he redeemed us by his own blood. And he made us kings and priests in the earth by his blood. That's something we've talked about at length in times past. And we can reteach that again here. And hopefully we'll have time before we leave this series uh, next week. Let's go to verse 23. Anyone there? Sorry for being puzzled like this. But, uh, um, Pick here. And he likewise, I want to make sure that's where I want to be. He likewise sprinkled blood with the vessels of the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry according to the law. Almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shed of blood, there is no remission of sins. Um, I feel like I'm missing something here, though. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calf and goats and sprinkled the blood. We already went there, so I don't know why I'm lost in my notes. Okay. And he, everything, everything he did by sprinkling the, the law on the people, everything he did, everything that happened in the law, everything that Moses did, everything that Aaron did, was also, we have to remember, it was done after the pattern in heaven. It was a copy of shadow. Everything God told Moses to do in the Old Testament was a copy, was a shadow of the pattern of what was going on in heaven. It was a foreshadow of what Jesus would accomplish for us. So I, I like that because it helps me as a human to understand more. It, it's, it's, it's still shadow, so you, it's hard to make it out perfectly. But when you understand the gospel, when you understand Jesus, and you have the Holy Spirit who's your teacher to help you understand it, 
you can see the spirit of the law in the in the that that's a, a copy of the pattern. But if you let if if you're not careful, this shadow a copy can become a veil that blinds your mind and you don't see the pattern. You see now legalism and self righteousness, and you're not careful. The thing that distinguishes it. The two is the, is the Spirit of God, is the blood of Jesus, is knowing the real thing. Don't worship the shadow. Worship him. See Jesus in the shadow. Focus on Jesus, not the shadow. Okay? Because um, we felt on better things. Again, because Jesus did something more greater. And he did something that was more perfect by shedding his own blood. We don't need to do bloods and goats anymore. At the same point in time, some churches and some people are still act doing Old Testament rituals without the animals. They're still trusting what they do. And they're still acting like his blood wasn't enough. That make sense? His blood was shed once and for all. Our redemption is eternal. And we can still mentally in our consciousness still act under the old priesthood, under the old law, under the old covenant without the animals. That makes sense. Jesus was enough. Jesus was enough. His blood sanctified us. His blood set us free. And we have a true sacrifice because he was a surety of our better covenant. And his death puts the old covenant, his covenant, into force. Now we're getting my third point, and I'm basically out of time, so we'll see how far I get. I just I don't think I'm going to finish this part. I'll finish it next week. But the third point is that the blood of Jesus set us free from our sins. Okay? For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the truth, but into the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for man to die once, but after this, the judgment so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him who will appear a second time apart from salvation. I feel like I have to speed through this, so I'm going to actually stop here. I want to come back and, and go through this with enough time and speed, and then we're going we're gonna to tag on to that some new stuff than what I have in my notes right now. But I still have a few pages of notes for, the, for this morning. And I don't, I'm there's no way I'm going to finish it. I'm going over time. But, so let me just conclude by saying this. The blood of Jesus sanctified us. 
The blood of Jesus secured the promise. Next week I'm going to I'm going to uh, piggyback on my last two points in that the blood of Jesus set us free from sin. And the blood of Jesus finished the work. And we're going to also be talking next week about how the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. And we're going to talk about what that means. So I wish I had more time to expand this morning. I hope this has been beneficial to you. But know this, the, G- the blood of Jesus is enough. And the blood of Jesus is a surety of a new covenant, of a better covenant. And we can have our faith in Jesus. We can have our faith in the blood of Jesus. And we can let Jesus be our Savior, our healer. We have a great precious promises. And we're going to get into some things where Jesus finished the work. Because we have a great high priest with a better covenant, with a better promises. We have a new hope in Jesus. God bless you guys. You guys all make it a great week. And we'll see you next Sunday.